The partially examined life relies on your support. To find out how to help in ways that are cheap or even free, please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life episode 187 on free speech part two. So I was hoping we could get more in depth on the specifics of the fish article because that's the weirdest thing that we read that he's making some sort of, I want to say a cross between hermeneutics and the social contract as Wes was characterizing it, that he's, he's using fancy philosophical like language to make a, an analogy to incoherent speech in certain contexts to speech that you would want to limit in political contexts. And that Wes thought was a complete, a bad analogy. Complete sophistry was Maybe the word he used. Yes. Yes. So to say something, yeah, is meaningless, right? You put the wrong words after each other. There are certain rules to the game for it even to be coherent. And that's kind of built in. It's not about, there's no way around that. It's not like I have the freedom to utter gibberish. I wouldn't be understood. I think he wants that analogy to say there are these background restrictions anyway on what would be meaningful speech. And those background restrictions are inherently political, inherently normative, and also, he says towards the end, not subject to examination, not subject to reasoning, and which I find offensive as well. Oh, so. did he say that? I didn't remember that part. They're not known to us that we don't, they act on us unconsciously. Oh, that's what he meant by it. It might be true that they aren't being examined, but that's not the same thing as saying that they're not open to being examined. I think he says that. I'll, I'll look for the quote. And Those are two different things. Get back to you on it, but... But we should be a little bit open to the idea that meaningfulness is not just a matter of is it proper grammar and syntax from our last episode, that really if you say meaning is use and use involves not just that you use words that are in correct grammatical order and actually refer to something, the locutionary aspects, but that also that it makes sense as a move in the language game, what Austin in our last episode referred to as the illocutionary aspects. And then we could also talk about the perlocutionary aspects, which we got on, you know, right at the beginning of our, uh, of this discussion, where you could be using something to insult someone apart from the literal meanings of the words or even the ordinary performative use of the thing. You could be using something with the intention of intimidating or whatever. So we'd want to consider not just the locution, but the illocution and the perlocution. All those kind of go up in a loose way to talk about the meaning of the term or what its status is as a move in the particular language game. And those are all allowable moves within the language game, insulting people, intimidating them. We can't be confused about this word allowable, make it out to be morally normative. They're allowable just because language can do that. One of the funny things about Fish's article is one of the points he's making is that there is no such thing as freedom of expression because there's always context. You know, in order for there to be anything understood at all, there's always all sorts of contexts that go into meaning actually happening, actually having an effect. And therefore, you can't have this sort of absolutist position called freedom of expression. And it's the same kind of thing that you would say about freedom in general, that because speech involves interaction, then there's always context to it. 
And a genuinely absolutist position would be analogous to talking about free charged particles in the world or something like that. And that that doesn't exist. Free in, in terms of like free will that we've discussed before, where truly free. That's exactly right. That's, that's, that's a better one to use. I, sh- I shouldn't go all physics on you, sorry. <laughs> I, though I have all kinds of notes in, in my uh, copy about how much his analogy is like the distinction between interacting and non-interacting particles. But the point I wanted to get to was when you make that claim, it's almost like a meta claim about speech, right? Because at that point, you say, okay, well, fine. It's all about context. It's all about political discourse. So now let's have a conversation about what kind of limits we have ought to have, which doesn't seem to be all that different than the place we were at the beginning of it. And in that article, which, again, I liked, I mean, I, I did find that the argument that he has would simply undermine any implicit claim that he has for wanting to regulate speech and that it just makes it a political discussion. And in fact, at one point he says, you know, whoever happens to have the mantle of being able to say, well, I'm acting in the name of free speech and be convincing about it is the one who's going to win, which I think is true. When I got to thinking about it that way, I wondered, well, so what's the point that you're going to get out of it that would change the way you interact regarding adjudicating free speech questions? He says the only advantage is that you diffuse the other side who he is accusing of using notions like free speech and the marketplace of ideas in transcendent, absolutist ways. That once you say, it's my freedom of speech, then the discussion stops. And he says, no, that you need to see, again, consider why freedom of speech is great as a rule utilitarian rule of thumb. History has taught us that repressing speech leads to generally a harmful invasion of people's privacy, of harmful invasion, abridgment of people's rights. It brings all sorts of harm. So in general, we would not want to do that. But still, we have to keep in mind that underlying harm-based rationale for free speech in the first place and not just say free speech as if it's, you know, you're invoking the name of God. He says he wants to see hate speech regulated. That's the motive. But that point about taking principles and making them dogmatic, that's a criticism you can make of turning any kind of principle into an absolutist position, just like freedom of my will is free or any of these other things that are principles that you would use so a softer version of his argument, and I think something that's probably consistent with what Wes has been saying, is that we really ought to be justifying our opinions and we ought to be having to defend either the rules or the lack of the regulation or lack of regulation, the, the kinds of uh, instances in which we allow uh, wide ranges of free speech and, and the kinds of constraints we have on them. And maybe we have articulated principle that we give very, very wide berth to speech because of other goods that come out of it with regards to our society and supporting our liberal democracy. I don't think he's right empirically about appeals to free speech just shutting down conversations. You know, right now the libertarian free speechers are going at it with a certain segment of the left which is opposed to quote unquote free speech absolutism and wants to see hate speech regulated. So there's a lively debate, obviously Fish was debating this as well, and probably the academic consensus is close to the position that hate speech 
ought to be regulated for people in the social sciences and humanities. The libertarians versus the dignitarians. That's right. There we go. So the principle of free speech itself is a kind of dogma, right? It's meant to become a fundamental value of society. And even Mill says this, it's something we should inculcate in people because the existence of liberal society depends on it. Which is not to say such a principle is not open to discussion. And of course it is discussed. So the irony is, you know, you can, you can have a first amendment, but first amendments can be withdrawn or modified. And you can have this very strong value within a society, but have it attacked by dissenters. So the principle of free speech is inherently perilous to itself. And so that's the paradox, but unfortunately, I think it's the paradox we must embrace. And the other part of this is the dogma, I think, is traceable to a Socratic dogma, but it's the best sort of dogma we can get to, which is that I know only that I know nothing. For Mill, the principle of free speech is based largely on the concept of our own fallibility, which I think it really comes down to our own fundamental ignorance, which we have to embrace that to the hilt, even to the point of the sort of discomfort that I think most people won't allow themselves because I think it is the one thing that we can know. And if we really want to be dogmatists about something and impassioned about something, the idea of our own ignorance and everything that flows from it is it. Wes, would you say that the principle of freedom of speech must be embraced to the hilt as you expressed by a liberal democracy? Otherwise, you open the door to that liberal democracy effectively undermining itself. That regulation of speech, aside from you know a small cadre of very obvious examples, ultimately leads to a authoritarian reaction that would undermine the existence of the liberal democracy itself, which would make free speech, in fact, the primary principle even before liberal democracy. What's interesting about on liberty is that in the beginning he mentions, well, we all know about the argument that the government can use this whole free speech. You know, if we're allowed to regulate free speech, then it's a sanction for government oppression. So I'm not going to even discuss that. And he really doesn't discuss it. It's not a big topic in on liberty, even though it's the first thing that libertarians bring up today, right? They'll say, well, you want to regulate speech? Do you think you're always going to be in power? Do you think that the powers that be are always going to be the ones that will prohibit hate speech? You're just deluded that your sort of speech is the one that's always going to be triumphant. Do you want the Republican Congress and Trump to tell us what speech is allowed? So no, because power is contingent and it's going to change hands, we are much, much better off in the long run with making the principle of free speech sacred. So that's one argument. But what I like in Mill is that he goes way, way beyond this to say our integrity as individuals, our integrity as autonomous beings, as people who are capable of being thoughtful and free depends on freedom of conscience, but not just dogmatic road conscience, but tested conscience, which means we have to be able to express our views and allow them to rub up against other people's views. We cannot be fully human without it, and hence we can't have a good society without it. I think you're kind of echoing the the flag-waving about the principle in the abstract of free speech. And Fish is not saying, ah, screw free speech. No, he's saying that in making that kind of declaration in its favor, that you're assuming it has a determinative content. 
maybe you're not actually doing this, but Fish is saying that you are. And when somebody brings that up to defend my right to hate speech, for instance, well, no, there's actually nothing in the notion of free speech itself as this thing that you want to defend and, and as building in the Socratic principle that necessarily says anything either way about hate speech. It's actually a much less determined content. And, and some of this is, according to Fish, it's because in determining whether something is under its protection or not, we have to make distinctions like, is this an opinion or some sort of other performative act that's not just the stating of an opinion? That Mill's argument is in favor of all opinions should be on the table. You know, I might be wrong about any opinion. It insults my intelligence to shield me from some opinions. We need to all have the autonomy. And that's what democracy requires is to have us be able to consider all opinions. But we started off the podcast by saying, if you know, I just come up and I call you a racial epithet, that's actually you taking an action one person taking an action toward another, that's not an expression of an opinion or not. So you could be all in favor of free speech, but think that it applies differently, that it does or does not encompass hate speech. Yeah, the, the determinative principle there is Mill's harm principle. And if Fish wants a different principle, he ought to express it and he ought to criticize that principle. So there is a determinative content, at least for Mill, to what counts as free speech. And there are independent reasons to value free speech. Again, the value of truth, the value of individual autonomy and all that stuff. But I think, so the tricky question is if someone publishes racial epithets in their Nazi newspaper, if Nazis are allowed to publicly assemble, is, does that constitute a harm? Can we say because it harms the dignity of certain people that this sort of emotional harm is something that we ought to say falls within the rubric of Mill's harm principle. I think that's the question. And the other stuff is a little more straightforward about speech acts, libel and slander and fighting words and fire in a crowded theater. Those speech act distinctions are pretty clear about it not being a mere expression of opinion, but something else. But so the tricky case is when it is an expression of opinion, but maybe it's also so harmful to the dignity of people that it ought to be prohibited. If I start with the concept of written speech, my inclination is to say it should be allowed. If you want to write something down and post it on the internet or write a book being hateful or expressing hatred towards other groups, you should be permitted to do that And because that act itself is avoidable. It's an act that's perpetrated without a specific recipient in mind. So if I'm in the class of people that are a target of your hate speech and you publish a blog, I can just choose not to read it or what have you as far as my reaction to it is concerned. But if you pull up outside my house with a loudspeaker, even though you're on the road and it's legal and all that, and you say exactly the same things and it's targeting me specifically, then in that case, I'm inclined to question whether it should be permitted that would be like whether or not there should be something different about painting a swastika on a Jewish person's garage over and above normal vandal laws, right? Um, no, not specifically. So you just raised the question about whether or not hate speech or that kind of thing falls in a class of already prohibited actions, right? We could say that that was harassment. What I'm thinking of is painting it on my garage versus just putting 
an image of it on a website or a, maybe even painting it on your garage. <laughs> yeah, heavy on your car and driving around. So this is such a difficult thing. There's a part of me that in the past has and currently wants to take the extreme position with Wes. Now I'm on your side on these specific issues. I know you're, but we have to acknowledge, like, if you use a hammer to build your deck, that's fine. But if you use a hammer to beat someone to death, that's not fine, <laughs> right? And I'm trying to parse that in my head if the use of specific kinds of speech functions in the same way. Yeah, as a threat, it's more like raising the hammer in a threatening or intimidating way. Or if you walk around your house just uttering racial epithets, it's very different than if you go out and you yell them at an individual. Mm -hmm. So it's the same words, it's the same person, and then there's the way in which they're uttered, right? So if you're a comedian on stage, you do it in the context of a persona or you're making a joke, it then becomes a question of intention, or belief. And so if it's always the case that the context, the intention, the beliefs, the disposition, the intended recipient or hearer of the thing, as well as the person speaking it, is always required in order to judge whether something is essentially hateful or not, then I don't think there's a way you can legally prohibit it. It has to be that ex post. I think we have principles for those distinctions, like the Skokie March. I don't see a reason that we have to allow that. It's an act of intimidation, and it could even be conceived as threatening. And I don't see why that particular community shouldn't have a, you know, say even if it's not Nazis, even if it's just, you know, the I Love Cupcakes Brigade. Why should they have to allow that sort of parade down their street? People have the right to freely assemble, but why should it be in anyone's face, necessarily? I think there are principles even that go outside of the specific content of calling it hate speech or whatever. You know, it's inherently a threat or a disturbance or a form of intimidation, things like that. So it's not the shape of the hammer and the content of the hammer, let's say, that's inherently the thing that we regulate. We regulate its use. Is it being used to threaten, for violence, or to hammer nails? One of my concerns after our mill discussion was again related to this issue of venue, that if we say strongly that the government is not allowed to prohibit speech insofar as it violates the harm principle, but yet any given venue is run by some individual according to their own rationale, then you could have the right to express an opinion, but no de facto way that you can actually do it because nobody will publish you. Imagine not even just something we find objectionable, but like we're in a strongly slavery-based economy and somebody wants to publish an abolitionist track. And we want to say the First Amendment does and should protect them in expressing those things. Yet there's nowhere that they can get public. If they're de facto silenced, that opinion can never. It seems like Mill enjoins us to look for unpopular opinions like that and give them a forum so that we can argue against them. And maybe our pro-slavery position comes out all the stronger, or maybe it gives us an overtime evolution as a society that unless we had that, not just legal openness, but the positive effort by venues to allow things that they disagree with, like Mill seems to think that that is a moral. Well, you can create your own venues. I mean, abolitionist ideas did have a huge influence and, in we're able to publish and you could start your own publishing company and all that stuff. So you might say it's fine for a Nazi newspaper to publish their stuff, but how do they deliver this? 
Like we want to say that it's okay for them to do it as long as it's easy for me to avoid, right? If they just write a book and put it in the library or even in bookstores, I can always just simply not open that. But actually, once even when it's in a bookstore or on a newsstand, then it's in my way. It can trigger me in a very real way. And I want to re-bring that statement up because I was recently reminded what the source of that was. That notion actually comes out of domestic violence literature, or you could say the same thing and give a comparable case in terms of people who have PTSD, that there are certain things that actually do cause harm. Nazi propaganda around Holocaust survivors would be exactly this kind of provocation that one could reasonably legislate, not that you're not allowed to publish your thing, but if you're going to put it on a public newsstand, just like a porno, you have to cover it with brown paper so people can see just enough of it so they know it's a Nazi thing, but so that they won't actually, so the Holocaust survivors in the neighborhood won't actually be triggered. Like that could, that's a situation that could be a real thing. So in the same way, I think this saying, oh, you can go start your own venue. Well, again, you could start your own venue, but if, if you're not allowed to let people into that venue, if you're not allowed to tell people about your website, if you're not allowed to advertise in public ways, then you're still de facto silenced. That last point, it just doesn't seem to me that it exists. Yeah. And in a way, it's almost like it takes care of itself. So for instance, if you're in Viennese society during the time that Hitler was living there, anti-Semitic tracts are very common literature and it's part of the public discourse and it's everywhere and you can't avoid exposure. That fact is actually connected to the fact that no one's going to prohibit it anyway. And in our society, you'd be hard pressed to go into a bookstore. I mean, you wouldn't be able to at all find a Nazi tract in a bookstore or in a, you know, unless it's Mein Kampf or something like that or on a newsstand. And that's the societal consensus. And so there would be no, no need to prohibit it because it's very easy to avoid venues. But if it weren't easy to avoid venues, it wouldn't be possible to regulate anyway. So are we doing justice to Mill's challenge that even unpopular things we should actually expose? It just seems that there are legitimate, and I think this is what Feinberg, when he's talking about the offense principle over and above the harm principle, that there's a legitimate conflict between the right of someone not to have their privacy, their sense of space, Fourth Amendment stuff, infringed on and people's right to free speech. Like these are just going to come in conflict. Part of the problem as Mill brought up is anyone can say they're offended as part of the conversation and anyone can call what you're saying racist or Nazi. So for instance, Christina Hoff Summers, she calls herself a feminist. She's a Democrat, but she's critical of feminism, of university feminism and pushes back against what she sees as the excesses of that. It's Tamler's stepmom in case you don't know. Oh really? Huh. It is. That's amazing. Yeah, she was deplatformed recently at a university. You know, people went in and yelled and screamed to prevent her from speaking, called her a Nazi. And she would get that same reception, I think, at most private. Well, maybe not, I don't know. But I think a lot of places she simply is, won't be able to speak because in their eyes, her form of libertarianism is a form of Nazism. So that's the sort of problem you run into with trying to say, yeah, we're going to prohibit the hate speech. But then the definition of a hate speech, unfortunately, becomes a legitimate subject of discussion itself because partisans will abuse that to the hilt. And I think they do abuse it all the time with people like Summers. I mean, ideally, we would all agree on what hate speech is, and I think there'd be a much stronger case for regulating it. In the case you're just talking about, where somebody comes in, she's invited to speak at a university by some group, and some other group of students comes in 
and disrupts and shouts down in order to prevent it from happening on the basis that she's a perpetrator of hate speech. What is that act as a speech act? I don't think it's free speech. I think it's the use of coercion and force to prevent someone from peaceably assembling. I agree. I mean, isn't freedom of assembly one of the key principles here as well? Yep. People are allowed to meet and express their opinions to each other in a public forum, but it should be anywhere. I don't think it should necessarily be on Nazis on the streets of Skokie. I'm thinking out loud here. In that case, if the organization that invited her had a closed-door event that you had to buy tickets or RSVP to, and they had metal detectors at the door, and they reserved the right to eject anybody for any reason from the conversation, and they did so, would we say they're defending their right to free expression? Yeah, I think so. But although universities won't generally do that, they will just shut the event down for safety reasons. And Right. But in this case, I think, so you could argue, you know, analogous case, like this is analogous to the Skokie case and lots of students, other students are going to be offended and then it's going to hurt their feelings. But I think it's hard to say that this is an act of intimidation when it's so easily avoidable. You know, the Student Republicans Club, who are a significant minority on any given campus, invite someone to speak to them in a classroom. And you think that that in and of itself is an act of intimidation. I have trouble believing that. You know, again, it's just too easily avoidable. But again, like I said, I, I don't think the university organization itself has any obligation to invite such speakers or even any student group has the obligation to invite such speakers. It's just that a given student group has the right. It's a nuanced case, especially at a private university. Maybe we should look at what uh, Fish has to say about the whole fighting words thing. So this is 105 to 106. Fighting words have been defined as likely to promote the average person to retaliation and thereby cause a breach of the peace. Then on page 106, the trouble with this definition is that it distinguishes not between fighting words and words that remain safely and merely expressive, but between words that are provocative to one group, the group that falls under the rubric average person, and words that might be provocative to other groups, groups of persons now not considered average. And if you ask what words are likely to be provocative to these non-average groups, what are likely to be their fighting words, the answer is anything and everything. As Justice Holmes said, every idea is an incitement to somebody, and since ideas come packaged in sentences, in words, every sentence is potentially, in some situations that might occur tomorrow, a fighting word, and therefore a candidate for regulation. So he said that the insight cuts both ways. One could conclude from it that the fighting words exception is a bad idea because there's no way to prevent clever and unscrupulous advocates from shoveling so many forms of speech into the accepted category that the zone of constitutionally protected speech shrinks to nothing and is finally without inhabitants. Or alternatively, one conclude that there was never anything in the zone in the first place, and that the difficulty of limiting the fighting words exception is merely a particular instance of the general difficulty of separating speech from action. I mean, it seems to me that he's making the notion of fighting words and extrapolating it over a long amount of time. And I understood fighting words as to a fundamental part of it is it's incitement that is very close in time. And that just because you say something that is fighting word category in general doesn't make it fighting words in the sense of an action. You have to be in a situation that's, uh, I guess, is it Feinberg that says this? Mm-hmm. There has to be a real tinder and that you have to be the spark that sets it ablaze in order for it to be fighting. So you're in a bar and everybody's drunk and you walk in there and you start calling the black guy there, you know, the N word and stuff. And you might perfectly reasonably say you incited him. And the fact that he punched you in the face is a perfectly reasonable reaction on his part. (laughs) Yeah. You have to get in someone's face. Yes. It has to be a particular interaction between you and an individual. It can't just be, he's treating fighting words as if you publishing something in a newspaper could be an incitement to someone to come fight you. That's ridiculous. There's essential elements to the fighting words thing, which are not just the content of your speech. It's also about the situation. 
Yeah, I mean, so to, to take it a little bit further, if you write something in a newspaper that makes somebody so angry that they hunt you down, break into your house and beat you to death, it's not that you incited them, right? It's that they committed a crime against you. Right. A reasonable person would say that you should control yourself better than that. And in some cases, fighting words could be devoid of any specific content. You get in someone's face and you start just screaming at them and posturing in a hostile way. It's what's inherent in that act, the threat inherent in the interaction. Using racial epithets can enhance that and can make the offense more clear and the intent more clear, but, you know. I want to give an example here because you made me think of something. It isn't charged, you know, racially or anything like that. When I was in grad school, my wife and I, we lived far away from where I worked at Fermilab. We had our check deposited at our, at our bank that was, you know, an hour and a half away. And, you know, as you are in grad school, you know, money's tight and stuff like that. And so I needed to get money deposited into our bank account that was close to Fermilab. And so I had gotten a cashier's check at our other bank and I brought it over to this other bank and deposited it. And they then told me that there was going to be a five day hold on that. And I said, why is there going to be a five day hold on it? It's a cashier's check. He says, well, you could cancel the cashier's check, which I thought was totally ludicrous. And in fact, I, you know, would have gotten this large amount of money in cash if I had known that this would happen. But I didn't want to, for whatever reason, didn't want to carry this large amount of money in cash. So I was very, very upset about this. At that time, I had just shaved my head. <laughs> Sorry. This is great. And I had these, I had sunglasses on and I was apparently looming. I was like in the teller box and I was like leaning over and I was looking at her and explaining to her that this was just crazy, ludicrous. And I was very, I, I wasn't yelling or anything like that, but apparently I was so intimidating that she started backing away. And then eventually they went and got the bank manager and he came over and shook my hand and handled me. I was immediately handled. And I wasn't formally escorted. I knew what was happening. So I, you know, ceased and desisted <laughs> knowing that I had lost. Mm. But that was to me an example of this. You don't have to use racial epithets or anything like that. You can just be intimidating, even if you didn't intend to mean, and even if you're perfectly right as I was. Well, except about the shaved head. You weren't right about that. But. There you go. Well, <laughs> <laughs> their prejudice against people with shaved heads. That was the thing. <laughs> That's a great example. Trying to find more good quotes in uh, Fish here about this idea of meaningfulness of assertion. So one of the places he just says it is on 111, page after what I was reading before. When someone warns about the slippery slope and predicts mournfully that if you restrict one form of speech, you never know what will be restricted next, one could reply, some form of speech is always being restricted, else there could be no meaningful assertion. We have always and already slid down the slippery slope. Someone is always going to be restricted next. It is your job to make sure that someone is not you. Yes, the war of all against all. Back to Catholics are banned one day and Protestants are banned the next. The way I take the absolutist argument, which I guess I'm inclined to as well, is that there's a higher value in preserving the society we want to have is preserved by preserving a very, very wide latitude on free speech. I, I said something like this earlier, that liberal democracy itself, to the extent that we consider that as being prize-worthy, as a fundamental aspect of our pluralistic lives, that free speech, in fact, is probably the most important principle underlying it in order to preserve it. And if we abridge it, then we lead down a very particular slippery slope, which is a slippery slope to the annihilation of liberal democracy in authoritarianism. So you're just straight up denying Fish's premise there. Some form of speech is always being restricted, else there could be no meaningful assertion. Make it concrete for us. What does it mean, apart from his fancy rhetoric? 
I think the way he means it is in the notion that there's always context and context always boxes things. And I think that that's true, but I think in the end it's kind of weak because what we're not talking about is that sort of weak notion. Well, maybe sometimes context is strong, but I mean, that sort of the unsaid contextual thing. We're talking about what people are making laws about. But also not just that, we're talking about something that overarches a multitude of different contexts. Yeah. So yes, within specific contexts, there'll be social coercion or institutional coercion to prevent you from saying things. But that doesn't change the fact that there's an overarching point of view. So the context for you know, how he brings this up in the first place is he's talking about the Milton essay there, Pajitka, and he's actually a Milton scholar. And he points out what seems to us just like an embarrassing oversight that Milton you know, has been going on about how a centralized government should not be censoring speech in advance, how ridiculous that is. And then he, he catches himself up short and says, of course, I didn't mean Catholics. Then we exterminate <laughs> And he gives the quote from Milton. And of course, we would just say that the time and place in which he was speaking, and uh, that's just an embarrassing he was wrong. inconsistency. Yeah, Milton was wrong. But Fish wants to say that actually, no, that that's kind of built into whenever you're advocating for free speech in the way that Milton was, you always have some sort of ground. Yeah, would this form of speech or advocacy, if permitted to flourish, tend to undermine the very purposes for which our society is constituted? So he's arguing in very much like the way Mill is, that we should have all ideas on the table so we can objectively consider them, but he considers Catholicism in particular as the intellectual form of giving over your reason to authority. That it's the Pope is infallible. Popery. Yeah, once you say the Pope is infallible, then you've given up the whole game of saying every person gets to hear all the opinions and decide for themselves. So that's exactly like we've been talking about if somebody makes an attack on democracy or free speech itself. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly, you know, the kind of thing that Sam Harris complains about right now or anybody who is concerned about extreme Islamic rhetoric that we want to say, oh, the liberals want to let anybody just have their free speech. But if that includes extended assaults on the principle of free speech itself in the name of Sharia law or something like it's OK to be intolerant of that. I don't think that's true. And I think part of it is, again, the question of fallibility. And obviously we disagree. People disagree with about what's anti-liberal. There's lots of people saying the right is anti-liberal for this, liberal in the broad sense. And then the left is anti-liberal for the campus stuff. So because we disagree about that, it's counterproductive to say we know exactly what's consistent with liberalism and what's not, except for those fundamental principles of justice associated with liberalism. So people do have the right to opt out and to be closed-minded And most of us are anyway, in some way. We can do our best, and maybe in our best moments, we are engaged in free and open discourse. But for the most part, we have huge pockets of closed-mindedness ourselves. So anyone can be accused of that, and it can be used to shut down anyone as engaging in popery. Did anybody else find these things in Fish convincing? When I read through this, I just thought this followed pretty consistently with things that we have since read, specifically with the hermeneutics episode with Gadamer, right? In order to understand a text, you have to have a great deal of embeddedness in a cultural context that makes you give hypothesis on how to read it. And unless you are biased in this way, it's the good kind of bias, then you can't even make sense of a text. And so by comparison, Fish is saying that we need to have some sort of paradigm in mind when we're engaging in a political speech act that for it to be meaningful at all, that much of the analogy works. But then, Wes, you're saying that there's nothing that comes out of that. Give me a political statement and give me the background against which it doesn't make sense. The paradigm against which it's meaningless, not just wrong, but meaningless. 
it's an analogy. Very just given the one, the alleged, I'm going to use my free speech within this American system to promote that we should have a universal Sharia law, that we should get rid of the very system that I'm taking advantage of to make my statement. That's the kind of example. But that's not a meaningless statement. Now I'm understanding what Wes objects to more clearly in that the analysis that the bar that Fish has is that context strongly determines meaning, broadly speaking. And I think Wes is rightly objecting to this part, which is that the people who make that argument for Sharia law, it's not as if they're not understandable. It's that you disagree with them. Yeah. And that disagreeing isn't the same thing as not understanding. And that that's the part of the argument that is misguided. And that the challenge there is leveraging context as being essentially saying, well, we have a kind of general social approbation against X. So therefore, we ought to just make it illegal to do that so that we can all like living together better. And that is explicitly contra the values of liberal democracy of having a pretty wide berth for pluralism within it. Yeah, Fish thinks, so he wrongly thinks that somehow the speech that emanates within the background of a principle of free speech must somehow be consistent with it, that that restriction is inherent. But it's not, because the principle of free speech doesn't say everyone has to believe in free speech. It's regulating behavior. We can't prohibit it. You can advocate Sharia law, but you can't impose that. So those are two different things, which I think he's conflating. Let's read another quote here. It's at the bottom of that, page 103 to the top of 104. All affirmations of freedom over expression are like Milton's, dependent for their force on an exception that literally carves out the space in which expression can emerge. Restriction in the form of an underlying articulation of the world that necessarily, if silently, negates alternatively possible articulations is constitutive of expression. For example... Well, let me read the rest of the quote, and then I'll give you the exception that I think is given right in the beginning of the Stanford article. Uh, without restriction, without an inbuilt sense of what it would be meaningless to say or wrong to say, there could be no assertion and no reason for asserting it. The exception to unregulated expression is not a negative restriction, but a positive hollowing value. We are for this, which means we are against that, in relation to which meaningful assertion cannot occur. Is reference to that value constituted as all values are by an act of exclusion that some forms of speech will be heard as quite literally intolerable. Speech is never a value in and of itself, but is always produced within the precincts of some assumed conception of the good to which it must yield in the event of conflict. Freedom has never been general and has always been understood against the background of an originary exclusion that gives it meaning. So there's the whole thing. The example that jumped to my mind was shouting over each other. Right, You always need restrictions in a conversation so that people can actually make a point and be heard by the other side and respond it. So right there, if you don't have any restrictions of any sort, and again, I don't want to just think legal restrictions because who's going to say it's against the law to interrupt people? Like That's not what we're talking about. But just in the forum of speech itself, there is a social convention that you wait for somebody to more or less be done with what they're saying. <laughs> And you try to listen to that and then you respond that unless you have that, then you just have a cacophony of voices. So I think this is what Fish has in mind when he says in any forum of conversation, there's always restriction because there's always that initial restriction of just talking over each other and yelling and making the whole thing incoherent. So like CNN's Crossfire or like Twitter. I mean, Crossfire is an old show, so sorry for the old reference. <laughs> 
he's giving the conditions of an optimal conversation, of a good conversation, but a lot of conversations are suboptimal. And those criteria aren't criteria of meaningfulness exactly. They're just criteria of how constructive the conversation is going to be. So you guys buy that as a response? So like I said earlier, I really enjoyed the Fish article. and I wasn't quite as aghast or found it quite as sophistical as Wes did. But I also don't see how it's exactly persuasive of, by itself, limitations on hate speech, for instance. Because it just makes that conversation what it always was before, which was a political one. Right. In some ways, he's kind of going against a straw man when West declares somebody as a sophist. <laughs> I think it's because they're arguing against not serious philosophical positions that respectable people hold, but against common notions. In other words, they're fighting a political fight. They're not actually fighting a philosophical fight at all. And so I think that if you're a good million or a constitutional scholar or whatever, then you probably don't hold the notion of freedom of speech as a transcendent value that stops all conversation, but that you hold it as Mill did as a very strong principle that the experience of history has shown us we should really pay attention to and hold in most cases, but still that should not, again, as you say, Dylan, Fish's ultimate conclusion here is that you just have to actually consider the facts in any particular case, and that it ends up being a political battle between sides who have different takes on what the facts are in the particular case and how the general rules should apply. And that as long as we're keeping the debate live, that is actually in the spirit of freedom of speech, is to keep the debate live, whereas if the notion of freedom of speech itself becomes so reified that it stops all debate, and I think that is an accurate way to characterize how I don't want to pick on... Harris or Peterson in particular or something, but when I hear people echoing their positions, they really are treating freedom of speech like that and like, ah, it's just a no-brainer that all these campus speech codes should go. No, I think there should be a discussion about, for instance, I think this is Peterson's beef, is whether the, the trans community should be able to expect people to follow their desired linguistic conventions in referring to them because it's part of their autonomy, their personhood, that they not be put into these gender categories. And society, you know, has been for far too long smashing them into this. So if some particular campus wants to say, when professors talk about this, we would like them to actually use the preferred vocabulary of the trans people in order to show proper respect for those people. And if they don't do that, there's going to be some repercussions, especially if that's only, you know, about the behavior of professors in their classrooms. It seems from what we said here that that should be absolutely within the charter of that university to do that. The professor could go publish something about how this is bullshit and trans is not even a real thing. They could have whatever opinions they want, but the university can control legitimately sort of what is said in the particular class. At least it's a legitimate subject for discussion. Whereas if you just bring up, no, freedom of speech, and then that stops everything, like, yeah, that clearly is a dumb move. And I think that is what Fish is objecting to, is the dumb move. By the way, I just want to say, because we might get emails about this, I think Peterson's position might be, nor I don't know, I'd read he actually does use the preferred pronouns and he had some more nuanced argument there that might be mischaracterized. I might be wrong about that just in case people are concerned that we're mischaracterizing him. It's a good example, but it doesn't necessarily belong to Peterson. It was not in our syllabus to listen to Peterson about this, so people should not take us too seriously. 
Yeah, but it is a perfect example because it's one of those difficult cases. Because demands have to be reasonable, right? You can't just make any demand on someone. It actually has to appeal to their conscience. I can't go into a classroom and say, because of my identity, you have to recite the Lord's Prayer each time you address me. Not Mr., but Lord's Prayer, Wes, are, are all one. Things like that. So that's a very sticky situation. I just like the comparison in terms of philosophical sophistication over time, which is one of the themes I alluded to in my opening statement. We've had a lot of episodes here on ethics and generally come down with the idea that ethical systems that prescribe absolute unbridgeable norms are just full of crap. To say the Ten Commandments, that's what you need to do, or even the principle of utility or Kant's categorical imperative. When we reflect on these things deeply about our intuitions and how well they satisfy particular cases, we often find that these don't work, that we need some more flexible system. And so something like what Hume is pointing toward or what Nietzsche is pointing toward, where when we make these judgment calls on difficult cases, we're actually engaging in the creation of values. We're inventing something. We're not merely reading off the law of morality written in nature. I, I think that there are bedrock principles. And this is what Spinoza called the ultimate dogma, which is love thy neighbor. Like that's the one thing the basic, the larger schematics are the one thing that he thinks is important. I mean, society has to enforce something, right? It's enforcing the harm principle. And I think the harm principle, while yes, there are lots of nuanced cases, as a principle, it's something I accept absolutely. It's wrong to murder people, and we ought to recognize each other as ends in ourselves, (laughs) if that makes sense. I think those things are really, really important, and when they go astray, things like the Holocaust and mass violence, that's the thing we want to avoid. If you want to think of some sort of guide star by which to navigate as a society, preventing mass violence and genocide and those sorts of atrocities is paramount. And it's an undeniable, I think, if you're going to have any morality at all, if you're going to have any values at all, you should be able to agree on those sorts of things. That sort of moral objectivism about extreme cases does not decide a moral philosophy, right? And so something more like Hume's view or or Nietzsche's view, as I was saying, I think is, again, I can't re-argue this right now, but this is based on many other podcasts that we've had, I feel like is, is this sophisticated moral view. And likewise, in the area of legislation, of course, legislation is much more tricky because it's a law. It has to be, you know, it's not something that you can just decide for your, you can create a new value when something comes up, but there are certain parallel phenomena between I hold certain moral principles and I will act according to them in most of my life. But when I come across a novel situation, then I might even have to reflect in such a way that my eventual conclusion might actually violate what I thought was a core moral principle. And I think the law ends up being very much the same way. I think it's a great rule of thumb to have no positive law restricting speech except when it violates the harm principle, but that when we get into these tricky cases or we get into these new cases or we have new issues of venue, then you know these things always have to be reevaluated. And I accept Fish's claim that there's always something political in the way that we've set up the frames of the debate in the first place. One of the things I think Fish is confused about is whether a liberal society is one in which liberal values are trumpeted and we ensure that people have those values or at least if they don't have them, don't express them. And then a society that is structured according to those values in which those principles reign. And this is sort of a killing the goose that lays the golden egg kind of situation where the anxiety that comes with, say, something like freedom of speech 
you know, in a way you think about controlling it and somehow ensuring that the intended society associated with it comes about by undermining that very principle, by killing the goose in order to say, I'm going to have this golden egg forever. And you see a kind of psychological parallel in people all the time. They're afraid of their own spontaneity and they try to control themselves in these very despotic ways. And they're doing it for the sake of some conception of the good. The problem is we can't control it and have it in that way. We can't have it as a content. We have to have it as a function, as a form. And so one final thing, I think Mill actually raises a really interesting and strong objection to free speech that he addresses in his essay, which is that we regulate action all the time and we're not fallible in that either. We have to make these decisions. And Fish actually makes this argument as well in his essay. He doesn't address Mill's response, but... So we have to make these ad hoc decisions. Yes, we're fallible, but we got to make decisions for the good of society, these prudential decisions. So why not do that with speech as well? And Mill's point is that our speech is actually fundamental to changing the way a society behaves. It's a deliberative process. And so if we prohibit speech, we prohibit that ability to change and to grow as a society. So that's one part of it. And the other part of it is that it's so fundamental. Freedom of conscience requires freedom of speech. And freedom of conscience is so fundamental to what it is to be a human being and so important to our autonomy again that it's pernicious to suppress that in anyone. Just to append to that, I think we have to find another reading, not this Fish essay, to really give us a good way to evaluate Fish's claim that you can't really separate the form versus the content of a liberal society in the way you've just tried to, Wes. That's his claim. And there was nothing in the quotes that I read that would actually explain that in a convincing way. So whether it's Popper or something else, I think we just need to do this in another episode. Okay. So I want to apologize for not having gotten fully into the thread. I'm still trying to find ways to digest this kind of information and deal with sleep deprivation and and all that. I think it was a very good conversation, you know, as somebody listening to it more than participating in it, but I'm not satisfied that I have my mind wrapped around it. I definitely think there's something that we that everybody who approaches the topic needs to think through. I agree with Fish that the notion of talking about freedom of expression or free speech is always one that takes place in the context of balancing it against other values. And so the question becomes, what role does freedom of expression or free speech play in our society and how how important is it? I think Wes very eloquently just closed by talking about making an argument for it's a critical value for the type of liberal democracy that we want to have. And I agree with him on that. And at the same time, I struggle with understanding at what points and in what context and in what circumstances is it to be subordinated to other values. And I think my struggle with that is not that that doesn't happen. There are clearly, I think everybody agrees, there are instances where free speech needs to be subordinated to some other type of value. But the question is, who's in a position to adjudicate it? I certainly don't think that the courts are the right people to adjudicate it. But I also struggle with the idea that somehow there's some emergent societal mechanism that does it as well. And that's where the whole thing kind of gets gray for me. And so in the absence of having a mechanism 
or a properly functioning, dialectically driven society where it's verification, like sort of facts are subject to cold hard scrutiny and people are able to have civil discourse, then I feel like the default position, I agree with Wes, that by default, in the absence of having a good societal mechanism to adjudicate the issue between free speech versus other values, then you just have to prioritize by default free speech and go with it and then deal with the consequences, which is not to say that you can't post facto do that. The other thing that came out of this for me that I think is is hard is the notion of whether it's a right, the concept of right, or is it a somehow a functioning value of the society and not necessarily like a right we in the United States, we have a tendency to talk in terms of rights. And, you know, we talk about the right to bear arms and the right to free speech and the right to freedom of assembly. But are those actual individual rights or is it more just a principle that applies in the context within the society? And I think you're seeing that same discussion, just like we talk about free speech, playing out in the debate about guns that's happening right now, right? The notion of is any restriction of the right to bear arms legitimate. And it's a very similar kind of conversation, at least in structure. Would that we had, <laughs> I guess the ACLU is the equivalent of the NRA in, in the free speech area. Fish convinced me enough that free speech libertarians, the arguments against them parallel very well the arguments against any other kind of libertarian. And, you know, we've just had episodes recently where we had a libertarian on and talked about libertarian ideas and thought that, okay, yeah, of course, centralized anything is going to have a knowledge problem. And so there's sort of a de facto, at least for us as Americans, a thing in favor of liberty. However, when the idea of government action becomes a scare tactic, when you think that there's going to be a slippery slope, if we outlaw the government to say anything about guns, then they're going to come and take all the guns like that. That's just we think that's irrational when NRA people say that. And we should also probably think that's irrational when extreme free speech people say that and when, you know, economic libertarians say that, that the government should be very careful and probably shouldn't intervene in most cases. I wish there'd been an opportunity. Just one of the things I stumbled across was the way of characterizing this as the distinction between mere negative freedom, right? The government coming in and stopping you from speaking, stopping, and the positive freedom to participate in robust public deliberation. This was characterized as the way like Stephen Breyer talks about freedom of speech. So this is not just how Europeans look at things like this is an active thing within the American judicial tradition here is that there might be restrictions. Both of those can be interpreted as potential ways of talking about freedom and might end up that you do need restrictions on certain speech that clutters the playing field or keeps us from actually participating in robust deliberation in order to facilitate that public deliberation. But again, we'd, I think there's, we need to find a different reading that really brings us to focus. <laughs> Wes, did I say enough there that you want to respond again or should I just? No. <laughs> okay. I was just thinking of saying something snarky, like who establishes those restrictions, Trump or someone else? Say that. Uh, no, it's, <laughs> it's not entirely fair, but. <laughs> That's okay. It's the end. Folks should, uh, yeah, use your free speech to get involved and uh, post something on our blog, a response to this, or on our Facebook group. And if we don't like what you say, then we'll uh, we'll remove it because that's how those private uh, forums work. <laughs> but we do it. <laughs> it's just a fact. If you call us assholes, or <laughs> I've had people rant and rave on posts before, and not 
not take them down. There is a point that would cross the line, but I've been called all sorts of names and it's tolerable up to a point. <laughs> sure. I mean, I just, I, cry in the fetal position, but you know, I don't take it. (laughs) (laughs) That should be your response is I want you to take a selfie of yourself crying in the fetal position. I should just put that as a comment under every nasty. (laughs) Make that your uh, Facebook wallpaper. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And uh, follow us on Twitter and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, we just, we want to hear what you have to say. What else do you want us to talk about in light of this? We're not going to always talk about politics. In fact, next time, we're uh, going back to ancient Greece and their politics. <laughs> and we're going to do another performance of a play just like Seth wanted us to do in our year-end wrap-up. So we're going to be reading Aristophanes' ancient Greek comedy Lysistrata with real actors and celebrity guests, but also us still on there. So <laughs> check it out. So despite the length of this episode, you might have noticed that we left a few threads dangling. And a few days later, I had another conversation just with Wes for a full hour and a half where we delved into topics like the relationship between power, excluding but not limited to government, to encouraging certain kinds of speech and not encouraging others. We also actually watched some Jordan Peterson videos on this topic so we could treat his view with some knowledge. So we've made this available already to podcast supporters through our citizen site at partiallyexaminedlife.com and also through Patreon at the $1 level. So it's a very lively discussion. I hope you check it out. And thanks again for your support. Our closing song is We Don't Talk About It by Steve Wynn and the Miracle 3 from their 2010 Northern Aggression album. You can hear me talk to Steve on Nakedly Examined Music episode 43 at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Running wild lately, rustling up the leaves, shining lights deep in the cracks that are widen every day. And everybody knows where the master hides the evidence and papers that explains all the mysteries away. But if everybody knows, except a few chosen ones, I suppose, there's no need to dig it up, no. So we don't talk about it. Could tie themselves in knots Every hour on the hour One thing would be for sure The jails would go bust And the churches would be full And the thieves would go on Just the way they were So if I turn the other cheek Except every now and then Take a peek I can keep my eyes on you, my friend We don't talk about it Align with the heavens and the saints And the monkeys and the lions And the grocers and the barons 
all working in cahoots might sound something like this. new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. <laughs>